this morning we're continuing a series that we started last week on the book of Colossians. Um, there, are, there are two major themes that we will encounter along the way uh, in, in Colossians. Uh, two themes that will help to shape our understanding of Colossians, but more importantly, uh, if we understand them, they will help to shape our lives. And that's really, really uh, important. The first of those two themes is that Jesus is the supreme king of the universe. Colossians states this over and over again, and it, and it states it more clearly and I believe more eloquently than really anywhere else in Scripture. And we're going we're gonna to look at a poem uh, in the last part of this chapter next week uh, that is just, oh, it's, it's such a beautiful piece of poetry uh, or music, we think maybe. Uh, it was a song, a hymn that was sung by the early church celebrating the supremacy of Christ. So we're, we'll do that um, next week. Um, that's the first of the two themes. The second is uh, that true believers in Jesus are so um, immersed in him, um, so, I'll just leave it at that, so immersed in him that they are actually changed. Something happens that, that transforms them, enough so that, that they kind of become a different person, uh, a new creation, really, is, is how the Bible speaks of it. Paul will tell us about 15 different ways that we are in Christ, and, and that's what he means. He, he, he means immersed in. We are, we are so in that we have been changed, and our lives then are affected by that. All of our relationships are affected by that. And because of that emphasis, all the way through the letter, uh, we're calling the series In Christ, uh, in bold there, and then finding our identity in the Supreme King. Last week, we looked at the first eight verses uh, where Paul commends the Colossians uh, for their faith, their love, their hope, uh, for the way the gospel is, is producing fruit and, and spreading both in their community and around the whole world. This week, we see Paul and Timothy move from thanksgiving for the Colossians to prayer for the Colossians. And we find the content of Paul and Timothy's prayer in Colossians uh, 1, verses 9 through 14. And that's on page 949 of the Bibles uh, that the ushers handed out. A couple of weeks ago, we heard the testimony of uh, answered prayer, answered intercessory prayer when Doug Hanks uh, was with us. It was an example of what sometimes happens uh, when, when we pray on someone else's behalf. That's what intercessory prayer is. It's, it's praying for someone else or on someone else's behalf. Paul's prayer for the Colossians here in verses 9 through 14 is a little different. It's intercessory. Uh, it's on behalf of them. But it has to do with their spiritual health, not their physical health. And so it not only serves as a good model for how we can pray for others, but it also shows us uh, the kinds of things that, that God would want us to be building into our own lives. Now, uh, Verses 9 through 14 um, 
are one long sentence in Greek. Uh, in English, we've, we've broken it into separate sentences to make it a little easier to understand and kind of separate some of the thoughts. Um, so I'm going to read this whole sentence, this whole collection uh, of verses here, and then we'll go back through it verse by verse. So Colossians 1, starting at verse 9, Paul says, For this reason, since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who is enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. Praise God for his amazing grace. Just before we uh, look more closely at these verses, let me lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us today in a way that we would uh, understand. We pray for this uh, spiritual wisdom and and understanding that is talked about here. Um, uh, Open our minds, open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, verse 9 begins with this statement, for this reason, and, and, and we can see then that it's a continuation of what has come before, what we looked at last week. And there's something interesting uh, about this, I think. Uh, the reason Paul and Timothy are praying for the Colossians is because they're doing well. Uh, verses 1 through 8 were just lauding them for all of this great stuff that they've heard about the Colossians, right? So uh, the, the good report that Paul and Timothy have heard from Epaphras compels them, first of all, to give thanks for their faith, love, and hope. But then secondly, that same good report compels them to pray. And I was thinking about this. You know, so often... Uh, we reserve our prayers for bad situations. Uh, The majority of the prayer requests that we get on the connection cards have to do with asking God to intervene uh, in in health crises or uh, relationship struggles or financial struggles. And and we should pray for those things. Don't, Don't stop writing those things down. The Bible does tell us to pray for those things as well. Uh, but it seems that we seldom pray into the good situations that we are aware of. Uh, we, we seldom pray for people to continue to grow in their faith. We'll pray for them to get back on track, but then when they do, we oftentimes stop praying for them. Paul also says that he and Timothy have not stopped praying for the Colossians ever since they heard this good news, this good report about them. Um, 
this is a little convicting because I wonder, you know, how many times do we tell somebody, uh, yeah, I'll pray for that for you. I'll be praying with you about that. And, and we pray once or maybe twice, but if, if we don't write it down somewhere like in a prayer journal or something, it pretty quickly can fall off our radar. Paul and Timothy are praying continually for these people that they've never met. Something else that I find interesting here. Uh, we talked about this last week. Paul's never been to Colossae uh, when, he, when he writes this. Um, so that tells us how they were praying. What were they praying? Well, the first thing uh, Paul says is that they are praying that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Filled with the knowledge of God's will. Uh, knowing God's will, it seems to me, is something that many Christians approach as if it's this elusive quest that they have to go on to discover God's will. It's, it's like some divine puzzle that they have to figure out. They have to crack the code on this, and, and, and once they do, they'll know God's will for their life, right? Even this week, I, I've encountered people who have been searching for God's will in their lives, and they're frustrated because they, in their opinion, can't seem to discover it. And one of the problems I have with this approach, treating God's will as as some sort of mystery that we have to discover, is that far too often uh, people who are in pursuit of this quest or or cracking this code, um, too often they ignore the, the plain statements we have of God's will in the Bible. He's really clear on a lot of stuff. There are at least a dozen things um, in in more places than a dozen that that we are specifically told are God's will for us. This is the will of the Lord. And then, boom. So we, we read that it's God's will for all people to be saved. It's God's will that we would be controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's God's will for all believers to be sanctified. Uh, Another way to say that is holy or or set apart. We're we're different. It's God's will that we would all give thanks in all circumstances. It's God's will that we would do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Uh, It's God's will that we would do good works and silence ignorant people by doing good works. Very interesting uh, thing that, that Peter says in 1 Peter 2. It's God's will that we abstain from sexual immorality. We may not like this one, but it, it, sometimes it's God's will that we suffer for doing good. Uh, that's in 1 Peter 3.17. Ultimately, uh, based on how Jesus taught us to pray. It's God's will for his kingdom ways to be lived out here on earth as, as they are in heaven. Now, this list doesn't include the, the 30 or more commands of Jesus that we just finished studying together. 
It also doesn't include the dozens of commands that we have throughout the Bible, uh, which are all God's will for our life. God says, do this. And so we know that's his will for us. So if you want to know what God's will is for your life, I just want to say this. Start with the plain things. Start with the, the things that he has stated clearly to do, right? So, Paul and Timothy pray that the Colossians would be full of the knowledge of God's will, but then they pray for wisdom and spiritual understanding regarding that will. So beyond the many clear-cut commands uh, that we are given, there are many, many times that we find ourselves in situations where it's not clear what we're supposed to do. Let's assume we're, we're doing our best to obey all of these things, but we find ourselves in situations where a decision has to be made and we have to discern with wisdom what God would have us do in that. And so Paul, I think we, he's praying this way for the Colossians. I think we can gather that we should pray for that discernment and that wisdom, uh, that spiritual understanding to come. Verse 10, Paul tells them that it's not good enough to know God's will uh, or, or to just understand it, right? The point is to do it. And he says they need to do it so that, or they, may need, they need to know God's will and understand God's will so that they will walk or live in a way that's worthy of the Lord. Uh, in other words, they need to do what God's will is. Uh, walk in a manner worthy is, is just a way of saying that our lives look like what we say we believe. Uh, too often we say we believe this, but there's not much in our life that, that reflects that, right? As we used to say, some of you have, you have heard this, that our walk matches our talk, right? That's, that's what Paul means here when he says walk worthy. And, and when we do this, this is pleasing, fully pleasing to the Lord. Uh, I, I read uh, an article uh, this week about a group of rather unassuming veterans uh, that meet together every year. Uh, they met just two weeks ago in Knoxville, Tennessee. And though they appear unassuming, uh, they all share one thing in common. And that, that one thing turns out to be our nation's highest military award for bravery. Uh, they all have received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, and, and those who have received the medal belong to this sort of special society or, or fraternity uh, that only includes 3,500 people since its inception in 1861 uh, when it was uh, uh, created by President Lincoln. That's a long time ago. Only 3,500 have ever received this, this award. Of those 3,500, fewer than 70 are alive today. So it's a, it's a pretty elite small group uh, of people. The executive director uh, of, of that society said that one of our tasks is to protect the integrity of the medal, 
and the meaning of the medal for the people who received it to ensure that it's not improperly exploited. The article said that almost all of the recipients agree that the Congressional Medal of Honor has transformed and redefined their lives. Uh, One recipient said, you're representing everybody and everything the medal represents. Another one said, it can be heavy, really heavy. And he was speaking not only of the honor it represents, but the responsibility and the scrutiny that comes with being awarded this medal. And what stood out to me was that the men who have received the Medal of Honor feel duty-bound to walk worthy of that medal. And I think that's what Paul is saying when he says we need to walk worthy of the Lord. We need to represent Christ well. Well, Paul gives uh, kind of a shorthand description of what walking worthy of the Lord looks like. He says that it is bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. So he's, he's praying that they would uh, bear fruit in every good work and grow in their knowledge of God, which he had already prayed about uh, uh, the knowledge of God's will. Here he, he's praying about the knowledge of God. Kent Hughes, a commentator, Bible scholar, sees this dynamic connection between action and knowledge. And I thought this was really interesting. If the Colossian Christians would apply themselves to doing the will of God, that is bearing fruit in every good work, then they would naturally open themselves up to increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, Hughes says that one begets the other in this dynamic upward spiral. That, that the more we serve him, the more we open ourselves up to the knowledge of him. And the more we know him, the more we want to serve him. It, it's a mutual cause and effect relationship between knowing and doing. That's a fundamental law of spiritual growth. It's just the way it works. And this is why I said that if you're not doing the things that are clearly God's will, you'll never get to the others because doing those things helps us to know God more. And as we know God more, we do his will more. Do you see? Paul and Timothy also know that walking worthy of the Lord is going to require supernatural power and strength to stay the course. Verse 11 He prays, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. In a a really similar prayer in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that God would give them spiritual wisdom in their growing knowledge of God. Sounds very similar to what he's saying here. He prays that they would know the incomparable greatness of his power in us. And then Paul makes this Incredible statement. He says, this is the same power. This power that's in you is the same power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and 
and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Paul is saying to the Ephesians that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to them to live the lives that God is calling them to live. And here in Colossians 1, Paul's saying the same thing. Strength and power that God will give them to walk in a a, a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And so we see here, this is not something that we have to do in our own power. We have to be obedient, but it's not our power that's at work here. I got to tell you, every week, sometimes every day of every week, I say something like this to God. I'm not sure I can do this. I'm just not sure I can do this. And you know what God says to me? Let me tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to me, sure you can. You get in there. When I say to God, I'm not sure I can do this. It's not super comforting initially. But he says, you're right. You can't but I can through you. I can do it through you. It's uh, similar to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 when God said to him, the apostle Paul, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in your weakness. Ah. I guess that makes it okay, right? You see, Paul knew that the resurrection power that, uh, that, that raised Jesus from the dead was available to him. And not only to him, it was also available to the Ephesians. And it was also available to the Colossians. And that same power, I believe, God's word tells us, is available to each and every one of you. And that truth... There should be some comfort in that, but that truth should also cause us to well up in joyful thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, he continues this long run-on sentence. Remember, this is all just one sentence when, when Paul writes it in Greek. Joyfully giving thanks, he says, to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. Hallelujah. Paul returns to this theme of thanksgiving and gratitude that he talked about in verses 3 through 8. But now he's praying that the Colossians would, uh, would well up with that kind of, of gratitude as well, that they would joyfully give thanks to the Father, like he and Timothy were, for bringing them into the family of saints who worship King Jesus. And not only does Paul pray that they will be thankful for this, I think what he's part of what he's doing here in these last couple of verses is, is trying to prove uh, that God's power is at work in them. 
So let me ask you this. According to verses 13 and 14, um, when is it that God will use his power to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? When will that happen? Read your Bibles. What, 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 when does it happen? It already has. Yeah. His work is already, uh, his power is already at work in us. Uh, when is it that, that we will finally have forgiveness for sins? We already do. You see, God's power has already been at work in us to, to make us a part of his forever family. Why would we think he's not powerful enough to help us walk in his will? Of course he will. Of course he can. You know, Satan isn't a name. Do you know that? It's a description. Uh, almost always when, when the word Satan appears in the Bible, it's the Satan. And Satan means the accuser. The accuser. I think one of the things that, that he wants to accuse us of is that we can't. And God really isn't at work. And God really doesn't care that much about you. Oh my goodness, saints. That's just not true. Are you going to get discouraged at times? Yeah. Is it going to feel like, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah, it will. And what Paul experienced was God saying, it's in your weakness that I really shine. That's where I really make myself known. I, I think I've shared this with you before, but I didn't used to like my name. I mean, I, I'm still not wild about it, but it, 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 I didn't used to like it. Um, somewhere along the way, I, I think it may have been when we were having children and, and trying to come up with names for our kids, uh, I looked up my name in, in one of those baby books, you know? Dean means someone who lives in a dark valley. Now, I was hoping for something like really inspiring, you know? Mighty warrior or something, you know? Nah, someone who lives in a dark valley. So we'll just park that. Let's move to my middle name. Maybe, maybe there's some good news there, right? I looked that up. Black River. <laughs> this is getting worse, not better. And then one day, um, one day I realized, because I didn't go far enough with my name, one day I realized that the gospel is sort of wrapped up in my name for me. Because Christensen means son of Christian, or in some cases they say son of Christ. Dean, the one who lived in a dark valley by a black river, has been called out of the darkness A kingdom of darkness. That's all there was there. 
and transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the the son that God loves. Right? And, And I get to use my name to say that, but it's true for all of you who have professed faith in Jesus. And and that should cause us to well up with joyful thanksgiving. It just should. And and for any of you who are here or, or listening from home who haven't moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, it really is just as simple as putting your faith and trust in King Jesus. And then you begin one step at a time walking in his will. And with every step you take, you know him a little better. And the more you know him, the more you want to walk in his will. And it, it progresses that way. That's, that's just how it works. Okay, just to kind of bring this around to a close. In the, in the translation I'm using, the last two words of verse 14 uh, sort of reinforce the, the theme of this series. Uh, it makes a great bookend with, with the whole introduction that Paul is, is writing here. Uh, we have redemption, that is forgiveness of sins, in him or in Christ. N.T. Wright says that if we would just settle in our hearts and minds that everything we say and do is in Christ, back to that idea of being so immersed in him, right? If we would just settle that in our hearts and minds that everything we do and say will be in Christ, that he is our king, that that we are determined to live a, a surrendered life to his will, almost everything else just sort of seems to fall into place. Sort of takes care of itself. I said at the beginning of my message that that this passage provides us with a model for intercessory prayer, for praying for others. And and you can pray this for any person on your prayer list. Uh, I mean, in addition to the needs uh, that they've let you know about. um, By the way, if, if you're... Uh, if you're a person who wants to pray for others and you're not receiving our uh, prayer updates, uh, because every week people share prayer requests and, and we, we want to be praying for it. If you're not on that list and you'd like to be, jot that on your connection card and we'll get you on the list, okay? But in addition to those needs, um, we, we have here sort of a, a model for, for other ways that we can pray. We can pray that the person would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for them. Uh, Some of you I know are praying for unbelieving family uh, or friends. Um, Let me just remind you that the very first thing I said that we know is God's will is that all people would be saved. So you you can begin praying this way Uh, verses 9 through 14, for unbelievers as well. Uh, Because part of God's will is that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Secondly, you can pray that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding about how to put God's will into action. Third, that they would live lives worthy of the Lord. 
bearing fruit in every good deed. Fourth, that they would be strengthened with God's power to do his will and endure to the end. In another place, Paul talks about running the race with endurance, running that race that's been marked out for us, God's will for our lives. And we can pray for other believers to do this as well. And then fifth, that they would be joyful and grateful for the life they have in Christ, uh, for being brought out of the darkness and into the light. How many of you know that that Christians can be some of the biggest sourpusses ever, right? That just shouldn't be so. We should be the most joyful, grateful people on the planet. Is that how people know us? We need to pray for each other that way. So you can can definitely pray these things for, for people that you know, but I want to suggest that Part of what Paul and Timothy are modeling for us here is praying for people they've never met. Isn't that interesting? I'm pretty sure that this would be true of everyone in this room. You don't know everyone in this room. There are people in this room this morning that you don't know. You can pray for them. You need to pray for them. They're part of our fellowship here. Um, pray for the leaders of this church. Pray that we would have all the spiritual wisdom and understanding that God wants us to have and and that we would walk worthy. Uh, We need your prayers. I'd ask you to pray daily if if, if that's too much for you, at least weekly to pray for us. We need it. Uh, I, I also said that this prayer instructs us on knowing God's will and, and putting it into action. Last week, we sort of turned the things that Paul was applauding in their lives into questions. And I think we can do the same with these five things here. Are these things true in my life? It's, it's definitely a step-by-step process, sometimes a, a baby step-by-baby step process. But with each and every step, we grow stronger and, and we know God and he understand his will better for our lives. Here's the last thing. When, whenever I talk, and I'm going to talk a lot about it as we go through this series, whenever I talk about surrendering our lives to King Jesus, I know that that can be kind of scary, and I know it because so many people have expressed to me that they're worried about what they will have to give up in order to follow Jesus. And if that's you, whether you're here or, or watching from home, I, I want to say this. That's a, it's a fair question if we were talking about anyone besides Jesus. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus isn't like any other king. And his kingdom isn't like any other kingdom. It doesn't work the same way as other kingdoms do. He doesn't work the way other kings and rulers do. He's good. Everything he does is good. 
And so that gives me confidence to say this. Whatever he asks of you, it'll be good for you. I promise. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are joyfully grateful for what you have done to bring us out of the dark and into your marvelous light. I pray now that that one baby step at a time, we would commit ourselves to walking in a manner worthy, walking into that kingdom of light that you have transferred us to. May we, may we live as uh, joyful subjects of our King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.